uh, series. So I'm going to read the first part of Luke 18. We have kind of three sections of Luke 18, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in even deeper. So Luke 18, verses 1 through 8 to begin with. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. The literal word there is punch me in the face. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to do this so she doesn't punch me in the face. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And, I will, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who, care, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So the first thing that I think that we're called to do if we're going to pray like Jesus is to be persistent. I gave a sermon on this uh, like a year and a half ago on this passage, and this is it's not going to be the same sermon, believe me. But it's titled, Bother God More. <laughs> like just, annoy, apparently we're supposed to just annoy God with our prayers. So this widow in this passage is, is in a tragic situation. In the first century, if you were a widow, though it can be very difficult to be a widow now, uh, it was even harder then. This judge has power, and this woman has no power in that context. This man, this judge, is prosperous. This woman is most likely penniless. No one was there to protect her. She was vulnerable In that culture, she couldn't vote. She couldn't own property. She couldn't even inherit her husband's stuff when he died. So many widows in that context, in that time period, were taken advantage of. They were ripped off. And here is a woman claiming eagerly that she has been wronged by the person that's opposing her. So in this context, uh, in that culture of the day, if someone steals something from you, you had to go make the claim in court against the individual. You'd have to bring the charge against the person who did it. You couldn't get the police or a prosecutor to do it for you. If someone had murdered a relative of yours, the same would be true. You'd have to bring the charge against whoever you believed did it. And, And every... Day life of the first century, a case would be brought to the judge, and the judge would decide to vindicate one party or the other. They would uphold one person's side of the story or the other. And in this parable, we find a judge who doesn't care about what God thinks or anybody else thinks. Some of you probably have had to stand in front of an unjust judge before. And you know exactly what this is like. Doesn't care what God thinks. Doesn't care about this widow. Could care less about her lot in life. And so this woman 
probably has a few options of what she could do. Number one, she could try to bribe the judge, and that happened. Somebody like this who didn't care what anyone thought could be easily bribed because he didn't care if anybody thought he was unjust, if anyone thought he was doing the right thing. But this woman had no money. She could threaten the judge, right? Maybe she did a little bit, right? He thought she was going to punch her. Uh, he was, she was going to punch him in the face. But she really didn't have power. I mean, like, let's be honest, right? That would have only gone so far. So her solution, because she probably didn't have the power to change her lot or she didn't have the money to bribe the judge, was to just annoy him until he had to give her justice. So she had to persuade this immoral, unjust, hater of the good with no fear of God inside of him. And she does it. She persists. She argues. She bugs. She cries out. She challenges. She does whatever she can so that she would receive justice. And what's interesting is the text doesn't say this guy changes his mind or views her, um, her plea as right and the other person wrong. He doesn't somehow become to this like moral understanding of I should care about this more, I should care about this woman. No, he just says, she's annoying me. It's still selfish. I don't want a black eye. I don't want this woman bothering me anymore. I, the only way to convince him was to just make his life miserable. And so Jesus is giving this example to show how drastic of a difference there is between this unjust judge and the God of the universe. So he essentially is saying, of course God, who is justice in a person, who cares passionately about people, will vindicate them. We'll see that justice is done. And I just wonder if many of us when we pray, it just it may sound a little bit like make us uneasy theologically, but I'm okay with that. Maybe some of us just give up too easily when we pray. I think about my kids. I like to think of myself as a decent dad. I'm not saying I'm good, but I'm decent, right? I, I try my best. I love my kids a lot. I have a short temper sometimes and I'm very impatient, but those are, but I, I work through some of those things. But this is, my kids, if they want something, I mean, if they really want something, it's please, please, dad, please, please. Come on, dad. This would be easier, dad. This would be so much easier if you just let me do this thing. Dad, you could have peace and quiet if you just let me do this one more thing. This would be better for you. You'd, I'd be so happy. You'd be so happy. Then they always do the fair thing, right? It's only fair, right? Or then I could have said something completely opposite. But you promised, right? I didn't promise, but they, 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 you promised. It's only fair. I'd be so happy. This would be better. Come on. And if, as they get smarter, they, it gets more sophisticated, Right? Sunny will come up and she'll like really like, she'll start giving me hugs and she'll just start like, she knows like this, dad, can I, can I please have a whole nother treat? You know, can I have this huge cookie that's sitting on the counter? And it's hard to say no to those things, right? 
And Jesus is making this example. Not, I mean, he's giving this example to say, like, we have unjust judges. We, we have imperfect parents. We have uh, people in our lives that are good that, that, may, that don't love us nearly as much as the God of the universe does. And so I would say as your pastor that we should cry out unceasingly cry out to this loving, merciful, healing, miracle-working God who comes through when our backs are against the wall. We must cry out like this. When, I, when we first started Missio Day Uptown years ago, um, I'm, I'm saying this, it's a little bit embarrassing because I don't do this now as much as I did then. Um, I would pray, I would get up really early in the morning and I would walk the streets of Uptown with, a, my kids would wake up real early and we'd get, I'd get them in the stroller and I'd literally walk up and down the streets and I'd pray for every house that I knew somebody lived in that was part of our church. And what was cool is everybody lived within like, you know, very, very close proximity and I knew where most people lived. So I'd pray for every one person's house and then I would, I'd pray for these different, like the schools and I'd pray for different buildings and I'd like, I mean, it was just like this, un, this longing, this desire for the kingdom of God to come in uptown as it is in heaven. I pray for, I knew people living in the nursing homes. I knew people living in shelters. I knew people living in this high rise or in this apartment building or in this house. And we'd, we'd just, we'd plead for our neighbors and our friends and our community that God would bring about his Holy Spirit and his very presence in our lives. And I, I really do believe, like looking back, that God did a lot in those moments. That God did a lot of things for our church. And so I would appeal to you to bother God more, to be persistent in prayer, to cry out to the just and loving and good God. Second, so the first thing that I want to set the tone for, I want to us to be shaped to be persistent prayers. The second thing is I want us to be humble prayers. So Luke goes on uh, in the next passage telling us about another a parable that Jesus gives or an example of prayer. This is what he says starting in verse 9 of the same chapter. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13 goes on, but the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I think this passage doesn't hit home to us as, as strongly as it should. And the reason being is that we have been trained to think of the Pharisees very negatively. We see we read lots of stories in the New Testament about how the Pharisees were kind of uh, pushing back against Jesus. 
didn't understand Jesus. Jesus pronouncing judgment upon the religious leaders of the day. But I want you to imagine yourself in the first century and the Pharisees were the best of the best of the best people. They were the most honorable. They were the most respected people. Everybody admired them as the righteous ones as the people that understood what God is like, the ones that were the most pious, the most respectful, the, 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 the most into following God in all of society. They were not hypocrites. They were the ones following Jesus, or not Jesus, following God, right? This is so important because people would have heard the story and they would have been shocked and dismayed that Jesus is using this Pharisee as someone that's self-righteous. And everything that he was saying, the Pharisee, is actually true. He was the one that was fasting multiple times. He was, he was the one that was giving more than was necessary to the temple and back to God out of his very well-being. He's saying, these are all the things. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I'm not doing all of these terrible things. The tax collectors were the worst people in society. I think about it this way. It's like, uh, it's, it's like, do you know, has anyone ever get, gotten scammed on email? Like, or maybe just like, you get the emails at least. The, the prince of like, Egypt is writing you and you need, they need you to send money to their cause. Well, some of them are more sophisticated than that, right? I, at one point in my life, I think I've shared this story in the past. I, we were looking for a new vehicle and um, there was a price that was too good to be true, right? But you just want it to be true, so deeply, right? So there was this forerunner. Do you guys know like a really nice, uh, this is like 15 years ago. And it was a, almost a brand new forerunner and it was f only $5,000, okay? And I thought this car is worth $30,000 or $40,000. This is an incredible deal, right? I could buy it and even resell it if I didn't want the forerunner. Like what can, and so I started emailing this person back and forth. I said, well, maybe he's like, well, I live out of the country. And so in order to get this vehicle, and that's why I'm selling it for so cheap because I just want to get rid of it. You know, you had this whole story laid out for me. And me wanting, like I wanted it to be true, right? And so he says, just wire your money to this account and you can... <laughs> And I didn't think, thank God, I didn't do it, right? I looked it up. I, I Googled, uh, you know, is this, like, is this a scam? Because I think what happened is my father actually said to me, I was telling him about this forerunner that I was going to get for 5000 He goes, are you sure this is legit? And I said, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's legit, Dad. Don't worry. I've been talking to the guy. I'm not going to do anything stupid. And he goes, do not wire your money. Check it out. And I said, I'm not going to wire the money. I'm just going to you know, figure out a different way. Anyways, it was a huge scam. And then you just feel like even though you kind of knew in the back of your head of like maybe a little bit, you're still so angry. Like, who is this person? Because you know people are falling for this, Right? You know, like people are sending their money, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. And they're just ripping people off. And you're just like, that's the worst person I can think of. They sit behind a computer all day and they just take thousands of dollars for pe from people. They just lie about it. Like, that's a terrible thing to do, right? That's what a tax collector was like, right? The email scammer, the person that just ripped everybody off, took their money. Even worse than that, they, ha they had rejected God and they had aligned themselves with Rome. They lined themselves with these foreign oppressors. 
That's what a tax collector was like. And the Pharisee was the exact opposite of that. And yet Jesus is using in this example that he cares more about the position of the heart than their exterior and their actions. Isn't that remarkable? It's almost offensive, isn't it? Like, you really think about it. Here's a person that fasts multiple times a week, that gives like 10% of their income away, uh, that, that's, that's pious, that's God-fearing, that's prayerful in their lives, that has taken the time to understand the scriptures and wanting to teach it to other people. And here is this tax collector, the worst person in society, and somehow he, in the kingdom of God, is more righteous than the one that does all this other stuff. It is offensive if you really think about it. But what happens is that Jesus sees beyond the exterior actions deep into a person's heart. And he saw pride in this Pharisee. And pride keeps us from seeing our sin Pride keeps us from admitting our sin. Pride keeps us from the love of God and the healing from our sin. And arrogance is so detestable to God. This is why Jesus says over and over again, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. When they're talking about who's going to sit next to you know, him on his right hand and on his left hand, Jesus would always be so frustrated. It's like, well, it's not going to be you, right? <laughs> Let me tell you that. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is so offensive to people that are moral by their own standards and think of themselves as better than other people. There's two characteristics of pride that come through in this passage. Number one is superiority. Superiority leads to comparison. This Pharisee compares himself to the other without knowledge of this other person's story, without knowledge of that person's history, without understanding that person's, like, maybe trauma or difficulties or you know, challenges. He values someone not for their personhood, but values them simply for their actions. And God flips the script and cares more about us as a, as a person and values our, 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 the, the deep longings of our heart and, our, and the deep core of who we are more than our actions. And I think that that's you know, maybe too simplistic because I think God does really very much care about our actions as well. But he cares more about um, his problem of pride. The second thing that we see is entitlement coming through. Because I'm superior, because I've done beyond what you've asked, God, I deserve this thing. I can get, demand God to do what I desire because I have been so faithful, because I fast and because I pray and because I give. But I think what Jesus makes clear in this passage is that though he prays and though he fasts and though he gives, he doesn't love. He doesn't love his neighbor. He doesn't love this, this person that, that is in, in, in need of God. He doesn't love God. He just feels entitled. What his actions have bring, brought about this ability to have what he wants from God because he is superior to others. Corey Russell writes, the greatest hindrance to effective prayer is self-righteousness that is more connected to what you do instead of what he's done.
tax collector stood away from others probably because he recognized that what he was doing in his life was not what God wanted. The reason he was afraid to look up to heaven was he was afraid to look at God because he knows that the way he had been living his life was not what God wanted. But that conviction of sin is where the Holy Spirit can meet us. It's where God's grace and forgiveness and love can overflow us and save us and redeem us and change us. See, this man knew what his actions deserved and he was willing to fall on the mercy of God. This is a strong push, strong story against our perception of who is saved, who's in, and who's out. Is it not? And it teaches us even more about transformation. If this tax collector can be justified over this Pharisee, this should be very humbling to us. My point is that sometimes those that, may look up, that we may look upon as the, the least holy or the most in need of God may be the ones sitting next to Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. It's a sharp challenge to our conventional understanding of goodness in relation to God. Like so many in Luke's gospel, Luke does this over and over again. He flips the script. The people that you'd least expect are the ones that get it. The ones that you'd most expect to get it are the ones that are left on the outside. The people that you'd least expect to be in part of like the kingdom of God are the ones leading the charge, are the ones going and being the leaders, are the ones proclaiming the good news, are the ones that are transforming society. And the kingdom of God is in the realm of grace, not in of achievement. God's love is not earned. It's freely given to those who are conscious of their need of it. So we must humble ourselves to receive this, the, the true love of God. If we stay in our pride, it's not that God doesn't love you, but you can't experience it because you believe that you're entitled to it, because you believe that you're superior to other people. It keeps you from receiving the fullness of what God might have for you in your life. You can't experience this, the unconditional nature of the love of God, the radical, extravagant nature of the love of God if we live in pride like this Pharisee in the passage. So the first thing is that we need to be persistent in prayer. The second thing, we need to be humble in prayer. And the third thing is that we need to be expectant in prayer. The last part of the chapter, not the last part of the chapter, but the last part that we're going to talk about today is verses 15 through 17. And it's about the little children coming to Jesus. It says children, um, so verse, uh, sorry, verse, I need to go back to the passage. Verse uh, 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter into it. 
and I think a lot of times people talk about this passage and it's relatable to obviously like faith and other things as well. But I, I was thinking about it in relation to prayer and like how, how kids pray and how they think about how, how they think about God. And having two younger kids, I've got to experience this where I hadn't been able to experience before. But but kids, they're just not skeptical yet, are they? Um, they're optimistic. They're expectant. They're trusting. Um, I think that our what we experience in prayer is often based upon what we're expecting to get out of it. And you look at Jesus when he prays, there's this level of expectancy for God to move. Is there not? When you think about the early disciples when they prayed, there's an expectation that God would move and act in their lives. One of my favorite passages is Acts 4. It's where uh, James and Peter, or John and Peter are in front of the Sanhedrin and they get released and they're really scared. It says that they're, they're, and they go back to the early community of the church and they come back and they're, they're, they're excited and they're scared, right? They're excited because they've been, they've been um, had the unique opportunity to speak for Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin to proclaim the good news of Jesus. They're excited because they've been released and they can go back to their community, but they're fearful. What is next? What's going to happen to us if we continue to do what we do? On the release, it says in verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And they go on and on and on. And they say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak with your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After the place, the place that they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. When I think about this prayer and many others, have you noticed how they always recall all the things that God has done? I think that there's a reason that they do that. The reason that they kind of recount, God, you've done this at the Exodus. God, you've done this in creation. God, you've done this through Israel. God, you've done this in bringing your people out of exile. God, you've done this, and you've done this, you've done this. And it's, I think that, that there's that is a building and showing that this, their expectation is that God is going to work in their time and in their lives and in this moment. I think that's the reason they recall it, right? It's, it's good to like remember, right? Remembering is a, is a very important thing. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. But I also think it shows that they are recalling these things, that you're naming these things in order to create an expectation within their people and within their community that God is faithful, that God is going to move, that God is, is, you know, is love, that God is going to act, that the Holy Spirit is going to be present. And I just wonder if there, that God might want us to have some sort of expectancy, right, about what God's going to do in our lives and in our church, in our community, in our world. And so I believe as we think about praying 
the prayers of Jesus and repositioning our expectations and longings, if we want to have the longings of Jesus, if we, can have peop- if we can be people that are persistent, if we can be people that are humble, if we can be people that are expectant, God is going to do incredible things in our midst. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, God, we would ask, even in this moment, that you'd begin to reposition our expectations and to reposition our longings, the things that we long for in our lives, and center them around you and your kingdom. We desire to be a community that prays, that's persistent in prayer, that's humble, that doesn't think of ourselves as any better than anybody else, but for the grace of God, we are forgiven, that we are saved that we'd be expectant people, people that believe that in in your power and your might and that your spirit wants to do things in our midst even today. Think about Peter and John. Peter, you know, this, this rough, uneducated fisherman that all of a sudden begins to speak with authority to the most intelligent and educated and respected people of society proclaiming that you, that Jesus is Lord. What type of courage and what type of of, uh, faith that would have taken. God, would you fill us with that type of faith, with that type of courage? That we would expect that even when we're in our hardest moments, even when we're in our most difficult times, that you'd give us the words to speak or the comfort that we need or the encouragement that needs to be had in our lives. That we'd be people that don't give up. That we're persistent, humble, and expectant. Would you make us a church like that? And God, we trust you with what you're going to do in us and through us as a result. Amen.